4: The FT. Rising inflation, what can you do about it? We look at high street and offbeat investment products. Popular ISAs, where are they now? We track the performance of old technology and property funds. And first-time buyers, how much can they borrow? We assess the latest mortgage offers. All this to come on this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. Steve Lodge. Hi there. And Tanya Poli. Hello. And our special studio guest, Rebecca O'Keefe, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Hello. So let's start with the money news. This week, the latest inflation data showed that prices are now rising at 4% a year on the Consumer Prices Index measure, leaving savers with few ways to earn a real return without taking risks. According to the financial information group Moneyfacts, there are now only 21 conventional savings accounts in Britain that can pay more than inflation, and they are all tax-free ISAs which limit savers to £5,100 a year. There are only two accounts offering an interest rate linked to inflation and no indication that National Savings will reopen its index-linked certificates until April at the earliest. So what are the high street banks offering to income seekers? And are there other ways to keep your investments rising faster than prices? Alice, if you look at the high street, the interest rates aren't great. So what are the banks selling to customers?
2: Well, they're selling um, what you and I would probably call structured products but what the banks wouldn't call structured products because that sounds rather technical um, they are calling these things equity bonds or investment funds and they um, offer what looks to be an incredibly attractive rate of income some of them will pay yearly income of up to six percent so that's way higher than you're getting on cash Um, others will give you um, a capital return at the end of a five usually a five-year term of maybe 45 percent on top of your additional original investment so they they look really great, these uh, structured products, and the high street banks really are flogging them quite a lot to consumers at the moment because um, consumers aren't earning anything on deposit.
4: But One of the problems with these products, I suppose, is it's just what you've alluded to. They're called all kinds of different things, which makes it hard to know what they actually are, and they're all linked to equity indices, which means they're not straight savings plans, are they?
2: Exactly. Um, Basically, what a lot of them say is that they will be linked to something like the FTSE 100. And um, uh, it should be high up on the marketing literature, but sometimes you see it more in the small print. But it will say that actually if the FTSE 100 falls by, say, 50% over that five-year term, you don't get your original capital back and you could get a huge loss as well. And the problem with this is that while it is stated somewhere on when they're selling this fund. It's not in the headline. And can you expect your average consumer on the high street to understand the risks of that?
4: Exactly. And I've always thought the structured products do have a place in certain investors' portfolios, provided they understand exactly what the equity link is, who the counterparty providing this return is, because it's it's often a a third-party bank. But I was quite shocked to discover that these are being now sold to main, you know, mainstream customers in very large numbers.
2: Yeah, we um, we commissioned a, a survey actually, um, and uh, the findings have come back showing that forty percent of investors now hold a structured product um, now, and that was across all age ranges, all kind of income levels. So it wasn't just you know the, the really rich investors that, that held a structured product, and that has surprised some people in the industry that I've spoken to. In fact, people that sell structured products, not at the high street banks. Because they've said, well, as you say, structured products are suitable for sophisticated investors who understand the risks involved and happy to take that bet on the FTSE 100 falling 50% or whatever it is. Um, They don't think it's suitable for um, inexperienced investors or, you know, the mainstream market.
4: And what about other ways to to try to keep, you know, your investments moving at, at the pace of inflation? And we've seen, you know, this week, more concerns about global food price rises, getting to dangerous levels, according to the World Bank. Um... What can people do about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, usually if you're trying to invest your way out of inflation, you would usually uh, look at equities or property. Um, but one uh, area that's emerging is um, trying to profit from food inflation. Now, that may seem a really horrible thing to do, but it's it's not like that. You're not profiting from other people going hungry or not being able to afford food. What you're doing is you're investing in companies that can increase the supply of food. Um, so uh, you can invest in funds that will um, try and increase food production, try and make agricultural land, um, you know, try and improve the productivity there, whether by use of fertilisers or um, improving water supply to the agricultural land, and, and that the idea is that that's a long-term investment. Um, because, you know, food inflation and food supply will be a big issue as the population grows and as especially as the emerging market consumers start to eat more meat and things like that. So it's a long-term theme, but that's one way that you can try and profit. So it's
4: probably from demand rather than the rising prices. And just very quickly, can you give us an example of the sort of sort of fund that tries to do this?
2: Well, one fund um, that's uh, highly recommended because it focuses very much on the food production side of things rather than just focusing on food retailers, CF. Eclectica. Um, So that's been getting the nod from advisors this week and of course I'll mention other funds in my piece this weekend.
4: Right, well I think uh, all of us should uh, look out for that piece. Uh, Alice, thank you very much indeed and for more on structured products as well as those investments that can benefit from uh, food demand look out for Alice's articles in the money section of this weekend's FT and on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, how much deposit does a first-time buyer need? We have some encouraging news for house hunters. First, though, stocks and shares, ices. Do you remember 1999? Labour Minister Geoffrey Robinson launched tax-efficient individual savings accounts, and every fund manager in Britain launched a technology fund. And we even all looked forward to the launch of the Millennium Dome. ...how times change. Of course, ISAs are still with us, and the Dome is now the O2 arena. But what about the Henderson Global Technology Fund? Or, remember this one, Framlington NetNet? Or indeed, Aberdeen Technology? They're all names that probably strike fear and loathing into private investors who put all of their ISA money into the hot sector of the time... It's a pattern that keeps repeating itself. The most popular ISA funds in many years have gone on to serially disappoint. Think commercial property funds in 2007 or the first wave of corporate bond funds of the early noughties. Steve, you've been covering ISAs since their very inception. Why do you think this phenomenon keeps recurring?
3: Well, Matthew, um, funnily enough, the investment industry sells what it can sell, i.e. oversells, and fundamentally investors are greedy, so they buy what thinks will go up. Um, I and you probably remember back in Nineteen ninety nine. As you say, every fund manager under the sun was launching a technology fund at the same time as no financial websites actually worked. Remember that. The Internet did not work in 1999 for most of us. Most of us had a narrow band then and most bank websites didn't work.
4: I didn't join the Investor's Chronicle website until 2000, so that's when it started working.
3: Mm, obviously, yeah. Um, but, um, yes, uh, it's also amazing how many financial advisors have forgotten what um, they sold um, to investors back in 1999. They would rather talk about the hot story today, of course, which is the issue, that this kind of ISIS season comes around every year and if the investment industry can find a theme that works, that's sellable, that's plausible, then investors will jump on that bandwagon. And all too often they're jumping on that bandwagon after the event, at the top of the market, when it's already performed.
4: Yeah, Rebecca, you've obviously seen the popular... Funds that uh, people are buying through your website over the over the years. Um, I mean, this is a pattern that you can quite clearly detect, I imagine.
1: It is a pattern. I mean, we've had three or four significant trends over the last decade: technology, property, corporate bonds, and probably in the last two years, emerging market commodity funds. I think what you've got to appreciate is that the average trend lasts somewhere between three and seven years. So if you can get in early enough, you're fine, you can make money. The danger with retail investors is that occasionally they pay too much attention on what's happened in the past and not enough attention on what the future performance is going to be. So if you have a fund that has performed 100% over the last five years, you should really be questioning how far it has to go from here when you are putting your money in as opposed to where it's come from. And that is is the serious mistake that some retail investors make
3: yes i mean i think rebecca as well i mean fun To defend the investment industry for a moment, they would say if they tried to sell something that was too early in its trend, too contrarian, people just wouldn't buy it. So in one sense, they're giving people their own drug, so to speak.
1: I I think that's true. I mean, I've looked back at our trends and our investors and our investors possibly aren't your normal investors in terms of the fact that they actually invest in riskier assets, maybe, and they are ahead of the curve.
3: And they're more self-directed. They are very
1: much more self-directed. For example, our best selling fund at the back end of 2005 was JP Morgan Natural Resources. Now, that's over five years ago, and people who have stayed invested in that fund have done Would pretty have done well. well. Yeah. Um, I think what investors have to try and avoid is getting in at the wrong time, and that is um, when something has been up. Sort of 100, 200 percent. They also have the opportunity to diversify their holdings because I think some investors tend to focus on a particular fund or a particular stock at the time. Mm. And, and
3: well, let's revisit some of those horror stories as well, just for you know for um, journalistic. Um, uh, enjoyment if nothing else. Um, some of those tech funds now would still be down 50%, wouldn't they, that were bought in early 2000?
1: They would. In the main, funds tend to recover um, from sort of typical they crises. They have recovered from <laughs> Perhaps 10% they have. of value. Yes, exactly. They fell from to sort of 10% of their value and they have recovered strongly from there but obviously if you've held those funds across the last 10 years then you're still significantly down And you Um, might
3: need to hold on for another 10 years to get your money back.
1: Quite possibly, yes I mean typically a fund sort of will recover in a shorter time frame than that. I think the technology sector demonstrated a huge bubble and a huge burst in which case sort of this was a dramatic example of something which really did lose 90% of its value.
3: But for many people, uh, I mean, cash ices have been much more popular. And many people will say the real lesson of all this faddishness, this sort of volatility of stock market returns, and let's not forget that the last decade has been a horrible time for stock market investors generally. They'll say, well, why don't I just stick to cash? I mean, we did some, we've done some research this week which shows had you bought a cash ISA at the beginning of each of the last 12 tax years, in seven out of 12 tax years, you'd still be ahead of the stock market. So still, still ahead of the stock market tracker and therefore still ahead of most actively managed funds as well. So why bother with stock market ISAs?
1: That is a, a relevant point. I think over the decade 2000 to 2010, the actual FTSE 100 was down nearly 12% over that time period. However... The UK stock market over the 90s was up 300%. So I guess you have to look at it from the point of view of um, timing, of the length of your investment horizon. I mean, most people investing think about it in terms of the next 12 months, but actually they're going to have this investment for the next 10 years, 20 years. So yes, in each individual year in isolation, it's easy to say, I would have been better off in cash. But looking at it from a holistic point of view and a long-term investment point of view you may well still find that stock market investing is better
4: so if you've got that uh, that's henderson global tech fund just hold on for another 20 odd years and eventually it'll move into it profit thanks very much for that uh, rebecca and uh, steve and for more on whatever happened to the ISOFADs, you can read steve's analysis in the money section of this weekend's ft and on our website at ft.com forward slash money and finally today first time buyers since the credit crunch first gripped lending markets in late 2007, there's one group of people who have felt its effects more directly than others – first-time buyers. Where once all they needed was a 5% deposit, a cheery smile and a steady job, in recent years young home buyers have needed to find deposits of 20% or more or provide a wealthy mortgage guarantor before lenders would even consider them. According to the Council of Mortgage Lenders, the average deposit needed by a first-time buyer is now £31,500, so no wonder the average age of a first-time buyer without family support is now 37. But there are signs that lenders are becoming more accommodating. Tanya, so what is the good news for all of our 30-something listeners out there?
0: Well, I think it's quite interesting. Obviously, um, first-time buyers is always going to be a hot political topic. um, And obviously, the government of the day is always going to want to look like it's been doing something to kind of obviously stimulate the lending market, help first-time buyers onto the property ladder. And actually, this week, we saw the housing minister, Grant Sheps, host a kind of industry summit Um, so they kind of brought all together people like house builders and the mortgage lenders and other industry groups to kind of discuss and explore the different options that could be offered to first-time buyers to help them back onto the ladder. Um, I wouldn't say actually a lot came out of the discussion I think it was very much to be seen um, with the other industry groups that they are talking about and seeing what could be done Um, although on the back of it we did see one house builder um, this was Taylor Wimpy launching a new scheme um, to offer 95% loan-to-values to um, to first-time buyers. I mean this is obviously only to do with select developments um, that they offer. And they've um, joined forces with two building societies to kind of offer this um, product. I think these are for developments in like places like East Midlands, East London and East Anglia. So it's obviously still quite a limited scheme, but it's another option um, at that 95% loan-to-value market. So it's helping first-time buyers come back onto the ladder. And we've also seen um, news this week from Moneyfax. I mean, they put out some data on 90%, how many 90% loan-to-value deals there are on the market. Um, So we've actually seen this increase um, from February last year from when there was only about 144 products being offered in the market to about 214 products. I mean, that is an increase because back in um, the summer of 2009, we only had about 56 products. And I think prior to that, there was probably only a handful of lenders actually offering these type of higher loan-to-value deals.
3: Um, Can I play devil's advocate for a moment? I'm I'm again first time buyers I mean these young people are starting out with huge student debts and if the mortgage industry makes it too easy for them to get mortgages they're just piling more debt you know, why this obsession with getting on the housing ladder? As long as they've got somewhere to live, that's all that matters.
0: I think that's a fair point. But then obviously people are very concerned about the fact that, you know, first-time buyers are kind of potentially the driver of the housing market. And if we don't see first-time buyers coming to the market, even the people who are bought their kind of first home and want to move to upgrade to their second home, we can't see that movement unless you get the first-time buyers coming back into the market. So I think that's where the focus really is, that we need to kind of have this part that's actually going to stimulate movement in, on the housing market.
4: So, how do you see the uh, the rest of this year panning out? You mentioned that there are now more ninety percent mortgages yep. as this particular um, Taylor Wimpy scheme for ninety five. Yep. Will we see ninety five percent mortgages from high street lenders?
0: I think it's going to be slowly happening. I mean, the 95% deals that are on the market already that aren't, um, kind of a house building scheme or guarantor mortgage. Um, there's actually only one bank currently offering, um, such a scheme and that's Yorkshire Bank, which offers a free affix at, um, 95% to value, um, at a rate of about 6.99%. not cheap. It's not cheap. No. And, um, obviously that's because of the risk involved. And I think what the, Summit was kind of to, uh, talking about was actually how can we encourage um, lenders who are actually having to, you know, they obviously have to take on a higher capital now to actually produce, be able to offer these loans. And that's the, that's the problem really, which is stopping a lot of the lenders and business ideas going back into the market. So that's why the discussions now surrounding a lot more about these kind of potential um sort of mortgage insurance schemes um, um which obviously the house and the house builder scheme is one of those because they're actually carrying the risk for the building site is um, involved in the scheme and also we're seeing all these kind of um you know innovative top-up loans being offered as well through house builders and I know assets is looking at doing one later on this year which um where you see the kind of building societies offer about 75 percent loan to value which is the area that they're happy with and then you get all these kind of other top-up funds which will provide the higher um, portion of the loan, obviously at a much higher interest rate. Um, but it
4: gets you up to 95%. It gets you up to,
0: yeah, so you obviously you've got a kind of initial route in. I mean, what I was to also say, um, with all these 95% schemes that are on the market, you really need to look at what kind of the term of the of the mortgage is, because especially with the um, Taylor Wimpy one, they're actually only offering two-year fixed rates, which I think is quite a scary thought at the moment for a first-time buyer going for a 95% loan. At just for two years. I mean, How on earth do you remortgage it? Exactly. And, yeah. that's, and that's what you go look at. I think really we need to see more five-year fixed rates coming through on that 95% level.
4: Very sensible. I think you should tell Grant Shapps that, <laughs> Tanya. Thank you very much indeed. And for details of that 95% finance scheme, look out for Tanya's article in the money section of this weekend's FT. That's all for this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find weekday news updates and all of these stories on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Tanya, Steve, Alice, and our special guest, Rebecca O'Keefe from Interactive Investor. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com.